This is season one of the Constitutional Commons podcast. This season is called The Founders of the Constitution. Your host, Rob Nadelson, is a nationally known constitutional scholar and author whose research into the history and legal meaning of the Constitution has been cited repeatedly at the U.S. Supreme Court by both parties and by individual justices. In this podcast, you will learn about the lives of leading founders and their unique contributions to the Constitution. Hi, I'm Rob Nadelson, and welcome to part nine of the Founders in the Constitution series, George Washington. Historian Forrest MacDonald itemized some of George Washington's constitutional contributions in American National Biography Online, and I'm quoting here. His role in working out the details of the Constitution was minimal, but Washington was important to the success of the convention with all. His very attendance, together with Benjamin Franklin's, ensured the convention respectability and public trust. His presence in the president's chair ensured decorous and tempered behavior by the other delegates, several of whom had outsized egos and short tempers. Perhaps most important, Washington made it possible to create an executive branch without which no national government could have been viable, despite the general fear of executive power that had prevailed in America since 1776. Finally, Washington's signature on the Constitution, in the opinion of many observers, made the difference between ratification by the requisite number of states and refusal to ratify. End quote. We can supplement MacDonald's statement in three ways. First, Washington didn't preside at most of the proceedings from May 30th, 1787 through June 19th, 1787. During that period, the convention spent the greater part of its time in the Committee of the Whole. Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts, a former president of the Confederation Congress, chaired the Committee of the Whole. Second, Washington further aided the Constitution's ratification by extensive correspondence throughout the public debates, that is, from September 17, 1787, up until Rhode Island finally ratified on May 29, 1790. Third, Washington worked his greatest constitutional contributions during his presidency. More on that below. George Washington was born in Westmoreland County, Virginia, on February 11, 1732, as denoted by the Old Style or Julian calendar then in force. When the British Empire, including the American colonies, adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1752, the calendar advanced by 11 days, and the year began on January 1, instead of March 25. Hence, today we mark Washington's birthday as February 22nd, 1732. The young Virginian grew to be a tall and powerful man. He wasn't merely strong, but graceful, notably on horseback and on the dance floor. Abigail Adams, who was married to the short, pudgy John Adams, wistfully testified to Washington's magnetism. He had eight years of schooling, 
but he displayed none of the deep intellectualism of some of the other leading founders. He was a pure man of action, a lover of the outdoors and the western backcountry, a competent surveyor, a soldier, an excellent practical farmer in tobacco and later wheat, and a wise land speculator. His wife and relatives brought him considerable wealth, to which he consciously, conscientiously added. After the financial collapse of his fellow founder, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania, Washington may have been the wealthiest person in America. One key to our first president's personality was his self-control. He was hot-tempered and thin-skinned, but he labored mightily and usually successfully to curb both weaknesses. His self-control and determination enabled him to overcome grave setbacks. He lost his father when he was 11. He suffered a bout with smallpox that scarred his face. He ran for the colonial legislature twice and lost both times before finally winning on his third attempt. In his military career, he was repeatedly frustrated, both before the Revolutionary War and during the war's first two years. Many of those frustrations stemmed from his own mistakes. Self-control enabled Washington to rise to an 18th century ideal. That ideal was fitting into one's pre-selected character, that is, his brand or public image. The Greco-Latin word character usually means brand. But character meant far more than public image, as we use that term today. A person was expected to actually mold his or her conduct to fit the image. Today we encounter this identity between brand and behavior far more in the private sector than in political life. In the private sector, the market constantly tests whether a product lives up to its image. But in modern political life, there are huge differences between the images politicians and bureaucrats adopt and how they actually really conduct themselves. It's one of the central failings of the mainstream media that the media permit favored politicians to get away with this. The character Washington selected was of the scrupulously just and honest man who reluctantly leaves private life to engage in selfless public service and then returns to private life when his task is done. He lived up to this brand in many ways, including resignation of his military command after the Revolutionary War and his retirement after his second presidential term. Washington's renunciation of personal power led to Americans comparing him to the great Roman statesman Cincinnatus, the man who left his plow to win great Roman victories and only 18 days later returned to the plow. Washington served as president from April 1789 until March 1797. Most historians give him credit for establishing the presidency on a firm footing. This is an accurate assessment. There's also a less accurate assessment, the claim that Washington transformed the presidency from a severely limited office, as allegedly conceived by the founders, into a far more potent one. But for Washington to seize power in this way would have been entirely contrary to his character. His character required him to assiduously respect 
the constitutional understanding of his fellow founders and to avoid any appearance of self-aggrandizement. The truth is that most of the Constitution makers envisioned the presidency as precisely the kind of office Washington made it, and the Constitution encapsulated that vision. The claim that he expanded the president's constitutional powers rests on ignorance of the founders' understanding and of principles of 18th century law and document writing. Our first president had to resolve several important constitutional questions. Three of these questions had clear legal answers, and in each case, Washington reached the right conclusion. Here are the three. First, the Constitution gave the Senate power to advise and consent to some presidential decisions. That's Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2. In 18th century political parlance, to advise could mean either to give counsel to someone or to deliberate, that is, to take under advisement. The Constitution meant the latter, take under advisement. Accordingly, Washington resolved, after some doubt, not to formally consult the Senate before making executive decisions. The Senate could take them under advisement later. Second, the Constitution granted the President a list of powers over foreign affairs. As I explained in my book, The Original Constitution, those powers were understood to include certain incidental authority. Taken together, the listed and incidental powers designated the President as America's leader in foreign affairs. Washington complied with the Constitution's meaning in this regard. He didn't go beyond it. And the third question he had to deal with is this. Washington assumed broad authority over dealings with the Indian tribes. Promoters of federal power claim Washington did so from a very expansive interpretation of the Constitution's Indian Commerce Clause, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3. In fact, though, most of Washington's Indian Affairs activities were authorized by other parts of the Constitution. Our first president also had to address some constitutional questions whose answers were not as clear. But the fact that he provided answers doesn't justify accusing him of usurpation. Founding-era law, like modern law, included a doctrine called practical construction, or liquidation. The latter word comes from the Latin word liquere, to clear. This doctrine said that when a document is genuinely unclear, and only when it's unclear, the parties may clarify or liquidate its meaning through later conduct. Founders such as James Madison in, for example, Federalist Number 37, and Alexander Hamilton in, for example, Federalist Number 82, publicly predicted that liquidation would happen with the Constitution. When Washington became president, one question whose answer was unclear was, who can fire federal officers appointed by the president and, and approved by the Senate? Could the president dismiss him unilaterally, or did the, did the Senate have to agree? Both President Washington and Congress adopted the view that the president could fire them unilaterally. For reasons I explain in my book, The Original Constitution, this is also the better constitutional interpretation.
Still more difficult was this question. Does the Constitution grant Congress power to charter corporations, in particular a national bank? The founders, the founders themselves were closely divided on this issue. Whether a person thought a national bank was constitutional depended largely on how that person interpreted European financial practices. In 1791, both the President and Congress concluded that the Constitution did give Congress authority to charter a national bank. Madison initially opposed this conclusion, but by 1814, he admitted that the doctrine of practical construction had liquidated the issue. Five years later, the Supreme Court agreed in its famous decision of McCulloch versus Maryland. Thus, Washington influenced the Constitution's operation far more as president than as a framer. About the time Washington left the presidency in March 1797, he predicted he would not live much longer. He was then 65 years old, and in view of 18th century life expectancies, his premonition was a reasonable one. During his remaining two years and nine months, he acquiesced to President Adams' request that he assume command of the troops in event of a war with France, a war that fortunately never arose. Washington exercised political influence by successfully supporting the congressional candidacies of Patrick Henry and John Marshall. He spent most of his time administering what had become a huge farm at Mount Vernon. After riding too long in a cold rain, he died on December 14, 1799, apparently from a streptococcus infection. As his life progressed, Washington increasingly opposed slavery. However, during his lifetime, he could not afford to free his bondsmen and was unwilling to put them through the trauma of selling them because that usually led to the breakup of enslaved communities and families. However, Washington's will emancipated all his slaves. Moreover, his estate funded maintenance and training for those slaves who were still children, and it funded pensions for those who were elderly. The pensions lasted until the death of the last recipient in 1833. I'm Rob Nadelson, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode from the series, The Founders of the Constitution. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to like this in your podcast app and subscribe to be notified every time a new episode is released. For more information about the U.S. Constitution and this series, head over to thinkfreedom.org. Thanks for listening.